Today's scripture readings from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 25, 43 through 45, and 51 through 62. A lot. (laughs) Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This morning we're beginning part three in our mega series through the the Gospel of Luke had two segments so far, each of uh, seven weeks, 14 weeks total, and then this last seven-week segment will take us through the 21 weeks and up through the season of Lent and up to Easter Sunday. And in this third segment, we're going to be making a shift in focus that mirrors or, or tracks with the shift in focus that takes place in the Gospel of Luke itself. So in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke, The focus is all on this one question of who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And that's been a lot of our focus over the last 14 weeks as well. And there's all this this material that goes toward answering that question. You know, the the background material about his parents and his birth and uh, his forerunner, John the Baptist, his early teachings, his early miracles. Who is this guy? That's a lot of what we've been talking about. And in chapter 9, the chapter that you just heard read, or at least a portion of it, that question that drives the narrative action forward for the first eight chapters is resolved. 
at least for Jesus' inner circle, and at least for us, the reader. Uh, you, you heard it. Uh, he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And first they just report back as people that have had their ear to the ground. Well, you know, nobody really knows. Some say this, some say that, some say the other. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of debate. And he says, okay, fine. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're God's Messiah. You're the chosen king. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, that's right. And as soon as that question is resolved, all of a sudden a new question is, is introduced. That's going to then move the, the rest of the book forward. He says, that's right. And the reason I came was, is to suffer and to die. Wait, what? We haven't heard that yet. That's new. That's new here in chapter 9. And he says it twice in chapter 9. You heard it read twice. He two times predicts his death. And so before the question was, who is this guy? And now the question is, now that we know who he is, why does he have to die? And a related question to that is, if he's going to die, if that's where his career is headed, then why should I follow him? Because if he is this anointed king that's going to be triumphant and victorious, he's going to have spoils to hand out, he's going to have posts in his administration, it's very clear why I would want to follow him. But if, on the other hand, he's headed toward death, then it's not so clear what's in it for me, and it's not even really clear what following him looks like, what following a guy who's headed toward death even means or entails. That's what the the book of Luke focuses on for the the remainder. What does it mean to follow a guy like this? And in in Christian terms, churchy technical terms, this is the, the study of discipleship, following Jesus. Thus far in the series, we've talked a lot about believing in Jesus, believing he is who he says he is, his identity, trusting in him. Now we're going to be talking about what does it mean to follow him. Not just trust him, but follow him. We're going to kick that off this morning here with Luke chapter 9 by looking at the three things this chapter teaches us about what it means to follow Jesus. Three things you have to have if you're going to follow Jesus, and these are going to be the three sections of this morning's sermon. So first, you have to have a new set of priorities. Second, you have to have a new source of identity. And third, you have to have a new sense of mercy. A new set of priorities, a new source of identity, and a new sense of mercy. We'll take those one at a time. And I should say at the beginning that this message is going to be preached backwards. In the sense that I just gave you three points, one, two, three. Um, And what you're going to come to see is that to do number one, you actually have to have number two first. But to have number two, you actually have to have number three before that. So number three is actually number one, which hopefully will become clear as as we go. (laughs) But first, uh, a new set of priorities. And this is, we're here looking at these two conversations at the end of the chapter. These two unnamed guys, the conversations go very similarly uh, to one guy. He, uh, one guy says, you know, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. The other guy says, I want to uh, follow you, first let me go say goodbye to my family. So in, in both cases, it's this issue of family obligations and family entanglements. And to both guys, he says basically, well, in that case, forget it. You know, he says, okay, no. Uh, it's like if you think of like a, a president-elect, you know, who calls somebody up, and this is November 5th or whatever, the day after election, and says, hey, I want you to take this post in my administration. And the person says, well, I, I want to do it. I'm in. I love, I love the idea. Just give me a week, a week to wrap up my current position. And the president-elect says, okay, never mind, and slams down the phone, click. And that's what Jesus does. He basically hangs up on both of these guys. 
So we're talking about priorities here. Jesus has to come first. And, you know, it's the reason that this rubs us the wrong way is because not that they're putting their jobs ahead of him, it's that they're putting their family ahead of him. And that's culturally what's more difficult for us to, to grapple with. We get that God should come above our jobs. That just makes sense to us intuitively. We know that God is more important than our job. We know that God is more important than our company. God is more important than American Express and Goldman Sachs and the New York Stock Exchange. That's just intuitive. You just get that without even having to really struggle with it. But what's harder for us to swallow and what we bristle at is this idea that God is more important than our families and our family relationships. Yet that's what Jesus says here. He's very clear about it. He says, oh, hey, Um, he he says, uh, I felt like I was shouting. He says, um, your relationship with me is not something you adopt in the service of your family life. You know, we should go to church because it's good for the kids. We should go to the church because it's good for us as a couple. No, everything, including your family relationships, is in service to this. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to put God in, in front of your family? Well, I actually don't even want to get into it this morning um, because it's a very difficult subject. And, you know, it doesn't mean, for instance, that you aren't around for your kids because you're always volunteering at church. It, it doesn't mean that you don't have anything to give to your spouse to meet your spouse's needs because you're off in your own spiritual world. So what it does mean is a very nuanced, very tricky thing to explore, and I don't think we have time to talk about it this morning. And the takeaway point isn't today, uh, put God in front of your family. Maybe we can talk about that some other time. The takeaway point this morning is just this broader point of Jesus wants to come first above everything. And you notice the language that both of these guys use with Jesus. They say, yes, but first. Yes, but first. And Jesus is saying, there is no but first with me. As soon as you say but first, the conversation is over. You know, the Olympics just ended, and it's kind of like you, you think of this as Jesus wants to be on the gold medal platform of your life. And if you offer him silver, hey, you won silver, that's pretty good. You can know that he's going to walk away, and the silver platform is going to be conspicuously empty at the medal ceremony. He's going to protest. He's not going to take silver because he knows he deserves gold. That's my metaphor, the gold medal. We should probably focus more on his metaphors, and he uses two of them, actually, in response to these two guys. I said that he hangs up on them, and he does, but before he hangs up on them, he he has a little pithy proverb, a little parting shot that he gives to each of them. So what he says to the second guy is actually pretty straightforward. He says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that's a, that's a pretty easy metaphor and picture to understand. Uh, any farmer would have understood that. He's talking about you're plowing a field, you're trying to you know, make a furrow. This is what I've read on Wikipedia. Um, that, that is, this is what I know from growing up on the farm. Um, uh, so you're going to make a furrow, you know, that's parallel to the, the furrow next to you. And if you look back, in the first place, you're going to go off track. You know, you're going to go awry. But then the second problem is it's, your, it's rocky soil in that part of the world. So if you hit a rock, you can actually break the plow. And he's saying, you can't do this with one eye on me and one eye on something else. If you, if you do it like that, you're going to break something. The second metaphor he uses with the first guy is a little bit harder to understand. It's a little more opaque. And what he says to that guy, you know, the guy who says, let me bury my father first. He says, let the dead 
bury their own dead. It's one of the more in-your-face things Jesus says to anybody. It's also one of the, the more cryptic things he says to anybody. So what's it mean? Uh, first, we should note that the guy, the, the phrase, let me bury my father there, he, it's likely that the father's not dead yet, so he's saying, let me wait around until my father dies, and then I can put his affairs in order. So it could be a few months, could be a year, you know, we don't know. But what does this let the dead bury their own dead mean? Uh, there's two dead parties in the sentence, the dead doing the burying and the dead being buried. And we know that the dead being buried are physically dead. That's why they are being buried. We also know that the dead doing the burying cannot be physically dead because physically dead people can't dig graves and that sort of thing. So the, the, the first dead, the dead doing the burying, have to be dead in some other sense. And what he's saying is, Dead in a spiritual sense. If you were going to expand the, the proverb to make it a little bit less pithy but a little bit more clear, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. And what he's saying to the guy is, um, the, well, so first, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? It means to be as insensitive and as blind and as deaf and as unfeeling towards spiritual reality as a dead person is to, a physically dead person is to physical reality. What he's saying to the guy is, the only way that you could not put me first, the only way that you could think that I could come behind something else, that I could be placed second to something else in your life, is if you were completely spiritually dead. If you were completely blind and deaf and insensitive to the reality which is right in front of you. Which I think is an interesting point because it runs counter to what I hear most often from people who have not yet put God first in their lives. What I hear most often, and hopefully, you know, you, I mean, I don't know if this will sound familiar to you, but trust me, this, a lot of people say this along these lines. They say, you know, I get it. I really get it. I believe Jesus is who he says he was. I, I understand the whole thing I'm in. I just haven't yet put it first in my life. And I'm going to. I I just need to make the changes. It's just an issue of discipline or priorities or organization or whatever. I'm going to put them first. I just haven't yet. But I get it. Oh, I definitely get it. And Jesus is saying, don't flatter yourself. You don't get it. If you got it, you couldn't possibly put it off. You fundamentally do not get it. That's the whole problem. It's not an issue of commitment. And that's what you think, isn't it? It's an issue of commitment. I just need to be more committed. It's not an issue of commitment. It's an issue of basic comprehension. It's an issue of ignorance. It's an issue of blindness. If you got it at all, if you understood at all, if your eyes and ears were open at all, he would already be first. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. You don't get it at all. You're not even close. It's not a matter of just willpower and saying, well, I've got to put God first. You have to come to life. You have to be made alive from being made dead, which means that something deeper is going to happen to happen first. You know, you can't just decide. You can't set out and decide, I'm going to put God first in my life. This is my New Year's resolution to put God first in my life. It doesn't work like that. Something else has to happen first. So, like I said, the message is being preached backwards. So, first it means a new set of priorities. Before that, something deeper has to happen, which is, number two, point number two, a new source of identity. First, a new set of priorities, but second, a new source of identity. And here for the second point, we're looking at the very famous lines of Jesus in verses 23 through 25, where he says, uh, whoever tries to find themselves or save themselves will lose themselves. But whoever loses himself 
will find himself. And what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose yourself? And he's talking here about the issue of identity. The, the word self in those verses is the Greek word psyche, from which we get psychology, psychiatry. He's talking about your sense of yourself, your sense of identity, your sense of who you are. And the, the, one of the crucial questions that every person has to answer for themselves is, how am I going to construct that? How am I going to build for myself a sense of me, a sense of identity that's stable and cohesive? And Jesus' approach to that problem is distinctly different from both the the classic Eastern approach and the classic Western approach. So the classic Eastern approach, and this is especially true of of Buddhism, is basically to disabuse yourself of the notion that you are an individual at all. The highest form of enlightenment is where you kind of blur and eliminate the, the boundary line between you and the rest of reality. And you just kind of blend into it. You merge into it. You realize that you are part of the all. The all is part of you. And you let go of this idea of me altogether. You just surrender it all. And that's in in Eastern philosophy, in Eastern thought, the only way to peace. To just lose yourself altogether and finally. And at first it sounds like Jesus is talking about something like that. You know, he says you have to lose yourself. And if he stopped right there, it would be a very Buddhist notion. You have to lose yourself, but then he continues. You have to lose yourself to find yourself. It comes back to you. It comes back to a sense of individuality. So it's not the Eastern approach. But neither is it the Western approach. What's the Western approach? If the Eastern approach is to to forget about self altogether, the Western approach is to be obsessed with self, to be obsessed with finding yourself. And what does it mean to find yourself? It means basically finding yourself is code for Figure out what your deepest, truest desires are, and then do whatever it takes to fulfill those desires. So if if Eastern thought is the annihilation of self, Western thought is the deification of self. I've never forgotten the first time I read in uh, Ayn Rand's Anthems, his ninth grade English class, I saw the face of God, and that God is one word, I. That's Western thought. You are God. Your desires are what matter most. And finding yourself means figuring out what those desires are and fulfilling them. Now, there's a few problems with this. The first problem is it's almost impossible to actually figure out what your deepest desires are. The, The second problem is when you do figure out what your deepest desires are, you will find that they conflict with one another. So then what do you do? Which one do you fulfill? The third problem is your deepest desires change. So the worst thing in the world is spend 10 years of your life focused on this one goal, fulfilling this one desire that you figured out, this is the real me, and all of a sudden you don't even want it anymore. What do you do then? And then the fourth problem, of course, is that even if your desires stay stable and even if you fulfill them, what people will tell you is once they fulfill those desires, there's still this gaping emptiness that they feel, which is why Jesus says, and it's like he's speaking directly to us and to our time, You're never going to find yourself by trying to find yourself. It's never going to work. It will never work. And that's what this line means about what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose yourself and never find yourself in the process. Because that's what we try to do. That's the way you try to find and build up an identity is by amassing things from the world. So if I make enough money, then I will know I'm real, I'm solid, I count, I'm somebody. 
If I climb high enough, if I achieve enough, then I will know I'm somebody. If I have enough experiences, enough pleasurable experiences, if I, if I travel and if I have the right kind of food and the right kind of wine and the right kind of sex and if I go to the right museums and the right art, highbrow, lowbrow, everything in between, if I have all these experiences and I have all these memories, then I'll be a real person, then I have a self, then I'm solid. It's the New York City version of it. The, the heartland version of it is probably more along the lines of family. You know, if I have a good family and independence, if I have my own piece of land, if I own my own home, and I have these kids that are good kids, you know, bumper sticker, my child is on the honor roll at whatever elementary school, <laughs> and they have kids, and I have all these grandkids, and I have this full home, all these people around the fire then I know that I'm somebody, that I count, that I'm real, that I existed. I'm not just a vapor that vanishes. And Jesus is saying, has the thought ever occurred to you that you could fulfill every dream you've ever had, that you could meet every goal you've ever had, that you could get it all, that you could gain the whole world and yet still never find yourself in the process, that you could do all of that and it would all amount to nothing? What good is it? if you gain the whole world and never find yourself. So what's the alternative? He says, you're never going to find yourself by trying to find yourself. Some things you have to do indirectly. Some things you can't do by trying to do them. They have to kind of pounce on you while you're looking the other way. And he says, that's what it is with finding yourself. The only way to really find yourself, nothing wrong with wanting to find yourself, nothing wrong with wanting to have a self and have a sense of identity. The only way to do that is to surrender yourself to lose yourself, and I want you to lose yourself to me. I want you to give yourself to me. I want you to deny yourself, meaning let go of every hope and dream you've ever had. Deny yourself, take up your cross, meaning take your life into your own hands and follow me. Lay your life down at my feet. Surrender yourself totally to me. And that would be like the Buddhist notion, surrender, except that you're surrendering to a person instead of to the universe. And at the end, you're still a person. He gives you a self intact back. He says, if you lose yourself to me, I will give you a self that you can never lose. That's the second part of being a disciple of Jesus, having a new source of identity, surrendering your identity to him, losing yourself in him, and finding that only then you get given a self back in return. But how do you do that? And how do you trust him enough to surrender to him in that way? Because if you, if you give yourself over to him like that, if you throw yourself over to Christ and say, do whatever you want with me, I'm your servant, I'm your slave, what if he's cruel? What if he abuses you? What if he takes advantage of you? How can you prevent against that? And how can you know he's not going to do those things? There's only one way, and that's the third thing, that's the third point of the message, which is really the first thing, which is a new sense of mercy, a new set of priorities, which comes from a new source of identity, which comes from a new sense of mercy. And here with this last one, we're looking at these uh, somewhat obscure verses in the middle of the passage, pretty neglected, not preached on very often. This episode where Jesus is uh, and the disciples are going to Jerusalem, and on the way they make a stop at this Samaritan village, and he preaches to them, and the, the text says that the village rejected him. So essentially he says, I'm sent from God, and they say, no, you're not, or you know, follow me, and they say, no, something like that. And it says that when this happens, the disciples see the village reject him. You guys remember the Samaritans from a couple weeks ago. Uh, the, the, the disciples see the, the village 
reject him, and they are indignant. They're filled with rage. Why? Because they know who he is. They know that he is the genuine artifact, that he is the Son of God. Now, the thing that's slightly humorous about this is they've only known that for a few verses. You know, this was just established, like, at the top of the page. But now that they know it, they think everybody else should know it, and they're going to stand in judgment over anybody that doesn't know it. And so what they say to Jesus when they see the Samaritans reject him like this is they say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? You know, it's like guys in the, in the mafia with loyalty to the dawn, you know. I did not like the way that guy looked at you. Do you want me to take him out? But it would be the easiest thing in the world to just dismiss this, you know. Like, what idiots, what thugs. But what I want to do is try to figure out where they were coming from. The first thing to, to note is that there was a guy who used to call down fire from heaven when people rejected the one true God. His name was Elijah. And one of the themes of this, this passage so far has been that Jesus is greater than Elijah. So you heard it read in the early part when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? One of the theories about who he was was that he was Elijah come back from the dead. And the disciples say, no, no, it's not that. We know that you're actually greater than Elijah. And then in a part of this chapter that we skipped and didn't have time to look at this morning, it's this episode known as the Transfiguration, where Jesus goes up to the top of this mountain with some of the disciples, and Elijah and Moses themselves in the flesh actually appear and talk with him. And then God speaks audibly, one of only a couple of times in the Gospels where God speaks audibly, and he basically says, Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. So that's been one of the themes, that's one, one of the new lessons that they've been learning themselves personally, is that Elijah, this hero of their faith, one of the great prophets of old, who would speak judgment and fire down from heaven, Jesus is greater than Elijah. And so their logic is, well, if Elijah would call down fire from heaven when people offended God, when people rejected him as God's messenger, then why shouldn't you, as greater than Elijah, as even more so a messenger of God, call down fire from heaven when people reject you? And it's an interesting question. It's a question that keeps getting brought up as you watch the narrative of the rest of Jesus' life unfold. Because not only does he rebuke the disciples here, you know, he says, shut up, you know, of course I'm not going to do that. But then he, he goes and does these similarly strange things as the, as the plays out. So, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, for instance, um, you see the same sort of um, verb on the part of the disciples wanting to defend his honor. The, the soldiers come to try to arrest him, and they stick up for him and pull up their swords, and a skirmish ensues. Jesus' only contribution to his side in that skirmish is to pick up the ear of one of the enemy guys that's been cut off and put it back on and heal him. The enemy guys. See, he doesn't rebuke the people that don't believe in him. He rebukes his own loyal henchmen. He doesn't help the guys that are trying to defend his honor. He helps the guys that, that are being coming for him and are, are offending him and are not believing in God and are, are really rejecting God. Why? Or you think about the soldiers who actually nail him to the cross, who are splintering bones into wood, who are nailing his hands and feet to the wood of the cross, and all he can say is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Where is the fire? Where is the judgment? Why does he not stick up for himself and for God's honor? The answer is in Luke chapter 12, just a few chapters ahead of where we are this morning. And there he has this, this very interesting line. He says, I have come to bring fire on the earth. 
and how I wish it were already kindled. So what does that mean? Uh, you know, first it's just more confusing. Well, he has come to bring fire on the earth. I thought you were saying he hasn't. You know, why doesn't why doesn't he call down fire then? What is this fire? And how I wish it were already kindled. And to understand it, you have to look at the line that comes next. It's a it's a two line couplet of poetry that he's saying. And uh, the most important thing to understand about Semitic poetry, and if you've never heard this before, this will be hugely helpful to you in reading the book of Psalms, is that it's primarily written in couplets, and the main poetic device is that the second line of the couplet um, reinforces and interprets and clarifies and amplifies the first line of the couplet. Saying the same thing twice in two different ways. So what's the full couplet? He says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have come to undergo a baptism and how crushed I am until it is completed. I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it was already kindled. I've come to undergo a baptism and how crushed I am until it's completed. And the reason he doesn't call down fire on the Samaritans and the reason he doesn't call down fire on the soldiers that are nailing him to the cross is because he undergoes the fire himself. That's the baptism he's referring to, this baptism of judgment, the wave of condemnation. That's the fire that he's talking about. And he says, I wish it were already kindled, not because I'm looking forward to it, but because I want to get it over with. That's the answer to this second question that drives Luke forward for the rest of the way. Why did Jesus have to die? For this reason, to undergo the fire on our behalf, to undergo this baptism of judgment and condemnation on our behalf. He is judged and he is damned in place of everybody else. See, the disciples were right about one thing, which is, and this does not play well today at all, I get that, but this is what the Bible is very clear about, that the disciples were right about one thing, which is that rejecting God and therefore rejecting Christ is a damnable sin. You can't get away with it. And that's what the disciples say. They, say they, they just rejected you. They should burn for that. And he says, no. Why? Because I'm going to burn for that. Jesus himself is the one who is punished for the sin of rejecting Jesus. It's mind-bending. You know, the soldiers are nailing him to the cross. Who's going to pay for that sin? You can't just nail God to the cross. You can't spit upon God. You can't mock God. Who's going to pay for that? Jesus himself pays for the sin of crucifying Jesus. It just ties your brain in knots. But this is the mystery and the paradox and the enigma and the riddle and the nuclear reactor at the heart of the Christian faith and at the heart of Christian discipleship, that the judge was judged in our place. If you think about it like in terms of a courtroom, he, Jesus ends up playing the part of every person in the room. So first he's the victim. He's the one who's been offended. But then he's also the judge. He's the one that stands up there with the gavel and says, you deserve to die to the defendant. But then he's the one that climbs down from the bench and climbs up to the gallows and pushes the defendant out of the way and says, but allow me. And you say, well, I don't, I don't really understand it. Well, nobody does. But despite the fact that nobody understands it, and we've been trying for 2,000 years, and we could fill this room, I don't know, a thousand times over with books to the ceiling trying to unpack it. Despite the fact that nobody understands it, what you will find is that if it lodges in your heart and in your brain, if this image, if this phenomenon just sticks there for some reason, 
its power will grow. And you, if, you can, if you can meditate upon it, if you can look at it, gaze upon it, even though it is blinding in its brilliance and confounding in its complexity, if you can look at it, the size of it, the magnitude of it will grow and grow in your life, and therefore the gravitational force it exerts upon you will grow and grow, and it will become this irresistible power that draws you to him. And you, you can't even explain why. But all of your defenses crumble and fail, and you just fall on your knees at his feet. Why? Because he loves you. Whatever else it means, the one thing you know for sure that it means, Jesus on the cross, is that he loves you. And it's a love that you've never seen anything like before. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's Charles Wesley. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's Isaac Watts. Both of those guys wrote in the 1730s, and both of them are still sung today. Both of those hymns are still sung today. These hymns that they wrote that have never gone out of style, why? Because these were two guys that were absolutely gripped by this mystery and this riddle of this love of the judge being judged in our place. They never got over it. They couldn't understand it, but neither could they get past it or get around it. It gripped them, and it has to grip you. It has to grip you. You have to come alive spiritually through this truth if you're ever going to be able to find a new source of identity in Christ to throw yourself over to him, and if, therefore, you're ever going to be able to put him first in your life. Let's pray. God, when we look at why Jesus came to undergo this fire, to be immersed in this baptism that none of us would want. It raises all sorts of questions for us, but at the same time that we don't understand it, we also are drawn to it and we can't get past it. God, I ask that you would make this truth and this love something that explodes inside each of us that generates a heat and a light that we can't explain and that as by your spirit you impress the truth of this upon us that then all the other pieces would fall into place that then we would see that someone who loves us like this would never do anything than what's best for us and we can trust you to give ourselves over to you that we would then see that you have to be first. That you have to come above everything else. Just as you put us above everything else and put us above your own needs. God, speak to us this morning. Let us feel your love in a way that can't be explained, can't be argued, but that is very real. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.